Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mindshifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mindshifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, July 12th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that page and click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for almost 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to the App Store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you choose to tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would greatly appreciate your doing that. You can do that by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. And or you can do that by sending an email to tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. 
Or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if you do that, send an email. We will address your comment or question on the Internet show, and then as time allows, send you uh, a response letting you know what day and time we were able to do that. And then you can look back in the archives and listen to the feedback. And we appreciate it uh, greatly when people decide to do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's just so much easier to do when we know how things are landing for you. And um, we appreciate it when people make it easier for us to do that by sharing their comments, questions, answers, testimonials, feedback, etc. So, plenty of time for comments, questions, answers, testimonials, or if anybody has interest in doing another worksheet. Susan did one on the 7th and then called yesterday to uh, give us the what you might call update or summary of the results of that work. It's another thing we greatly appreciate when people are willing to share with us their process. And um, Michael Rice likes to quote The Course in Miracles when it says, when you heal, you are never healed alone. And it, it also says at one point, millions yet unborn will benefit from the work you choose to do here today. So if you choose to do a piece of work, everyone will benefit. We had our support group last night. I like to mention the support group because we have one every Tuesday and Thursday or most Tuesdays and Thursdays. And... Last night um, was kind of in keeping with what Susan did yesterday on the Internet show. Last night was a night of people giving testimonials about how powerfully, positively their participation in the group has impacted their lives. And... um, It's always lovely to hear. It's always um, gratifying to me to be around when people choose to get healthy, which is one of the key ways I've chosen to say that over the years. And that is certainly one big part of what's happening when people join and then share in the process of the support groups. So I am grateful beyond words for people that are doing that and finding value in that process. And if you or somebody you know would like to join us absolutely free, all the information you would need for yourself or to share with somebody else is available at mindshiftersacademy.org. 
and there's a separate page for Tuesday's login information and a separate page for Thursday's login information. So area code 610, Susan. Hi, Dr. Are, are, Tim. Well, are you interested what? in doing a worksheet? I am. Yeah, it's kind of a weird one, and I don't know if it'll go anywhere, but, you know, I've been feeling so uh, good um, because of the work we did in the last few days. And on Monday, I I texted you that I had to miss the radio show or, or a large chunk of it because I was going to to an appointment. The appointment was with a friend who is also a functional medical doctor. She's, first of all, trained as a regular doctor and then changed away from that because she got very sick herself with Lyme disease. And although she followed some protocols, she couldn't get better. And she had long Lyme disease, which some people do. And she found a way to get better. And she's a young woman with four kids, and she was bedridden and without any energy until she found a way to get well using all kinds of alternative medicine uh, treatments that she pretty much, she's even written a book of how to get over Lyme when you can't get over it and so forth. I was going to see her. She lives on the other side of town, in a rural area, and I've instead of going the route I know, which was a little bit longer, I followed my GPS, and it took me through a very impoverished part of town that I've been through before. This is the beginning of the worksheet. When I get to a certain point toward her office house, I feel this darkness come over me, depression, fear, and I, you know, I know enough now to know this is resonating something in me, but I was surprised that it was so strong when I was feeling so good. And I got to the appointment, and it was a great appointment, lots of stuff, and then I decided I would, I almost decided to go my long route and avoid it. And then I thought, wait a minute, I want to see what's going on here. So basically, it's both a question and a worksheet. My question is, can a place or a person have that effect? Uh, Or can we, here we're okay, and yet somebody comes into our circle of awareness and something shifts. And I acknowledge it's all resonating with me, and I was acknowledging that when I came home. So I said to Tim Bingham, do you go that funny route? Do you follow the GPS? And he said, yeah, it's hard to follow. The the, the roads are at odd angles, and some are alleys, and you're apt to get going down one before the GPS really makes it clear which road. We've all had that experience. I said, well, how do you feel about that area? And he said, it is out site creepy I thought well I know Tim and I probably have matching bags of garbage but I wasn't saying anything to him about the neighborhood but he says 
it is a very disturbing area to go through. So I thought, okay, what's going on? So my question is, is this just, you know, shared hysteria? Or is it possible to pick up on something and have it be true? And, of course, it's my responsibility how I react. Well, and so, and you I'm know, inter- would, yeah. it's, how about the uh, the approach we were talking about last week one time where we talked about the approach, yes, and. So instead oh, yeah. of okay. it's either or, it's probably a combination of things. You know, so we have this shared history in our culture, and we think of, you know, dark alleys and the way they've been portrayed in movies and sometimes our own personal experiences and nefarious characters. And we have all of that in our history. It's in our books and our stories and our movies, etc. There's also the idea that neuroscience today tells us, and if you watch the Anil Seth videos, you'll hear... Um, comments like uh, when your brain creates a picture for you to try and show you what you see when you're looking out your eyes you think you're looking out your eyes but really you're just becoming aware of a picture your brain is creating and when they track how much data from your eyes goes into that picture it's only about 20% of the data that your mind uses to show you the picture. So where does the other 80% come from? It comes from your past, from your experiences, from your belief systems, from your trauma energies. And so that's Mm -hmm. also going on, right? And then there's a third factor that's probably going on, which is that we are energy sensitive. And we can be aware of energies around us. You know, we get what someone called the spidey sense, right? The little, the, the little tingle that happens. And that's, there's, you know, Michael Rice talks about how they can measure the high energy wave that leaves a mind when we think a thought. Well, that's not the only energy radiating off of us. And so if you go into an area where there's been a lot of war, a lot of poverty, a lot of violence, a lot of, loss and confusion and trauma and you're energy sensitive you'll pick up on that so it isn't a simple it's this or that i think there's a combination of factors that can contribute to that and it's a really good thing to have awareness of this kind of process and these this kind of tools so now you can unload some of the negativity that you carried with you into that situation that was getting resonated by the interpretation you were placing on the images and the sights and sounds of the place you were driving through. Mm-hmm. Because some, some people will drive through a, a neighborhood like that and see the perfect opportunity to open up a new ministry for their church or to start a new um, community watch unit. or And, and they'll, they'll get excited about who they can contact and touch and what lives are going to be improved when they bring their whatever, their loving response or their charity um, team to that area. Mm -hmm. So other people will look at that and say, oh, wow, this is a 
a prime spot for me to set up my organized crime routine and uh, and make money off of these poor people. So it's oh, wow. not just either or, right? Everybody's going to yeah. create their own interpretation when they have an experience like that. Right. That makes total sense. I like the yes and approach because I was thinking I shouldn't be feeling these things. This is all my garbage period. I'm still in bad trouble. (laughs) Well, that's probably a really good thing for you to understand. Bottom line observation that says, Anytime I have a negative thought active in my mind about myself or somebody else or a negative emotion active in my system, I can instantly know three things. Number one, it's a liar based on a falsehood. Number two, this is an old tape playing. It's not about mm-hmm. the current moment situation. And number three, if I sit and spin thinking about it, if I speak or take an action from it, I'm just going to make my situation worse. So when you have the thought, oh, boy, I'm in so much trouble, it's a lie. It's based on a falsehood. This is an old tape playing. Mm -hmm. You're not that much in a lie. Here's this other body of work or part of the work that Dr. Michael Rice presents where he talks about your vitality level. And when you're – you were just talking about this with him the other day. Your vitality level went up maybe because of your daughter's wedding and – maybe because of some progress your grandsons were making, et cetera, and you were as high as you could remember being in a good long while, and then the next thing you know, you're crashing. Well, mm-hmm. Michael Rice, you know, a way of dealing with this and his training in naturopathic medicine says, you know, that's just as normal as breathing. And it doesn't mm-hmm. mean there's a problem. It just means now you've increased your vitality to the point where, your higher internal wisdom knows you've got the energy that's needed to process some more toxins and traumas. Mm-hmm. Well, you just did a powerful piece of work on uh, the worksheet on the 7th, and then you were on the uh, show yesterday talking about all of the benefits from that and feeling wonderful about it. And so it's not too surprising that in the not-too-distant future, you'll have more upset resonated. Mm-hmm. Why? Because it's always been there, but now your unconscious inner, inner wisdom knows you've got the vitality to process through it. And, you know, you do clearly because you called the Internet show again and said, let's do a worksheet. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yep. Okay. So you want to do the worksheet? Sure. I I got the one you, I think you're using, seven-step newer one off the Internet with the column of stuff on the right. Yeah. I, Sue, who am love, that one. I'm experiencing, well, it felt like, Fear, nausea, just sick feeling driving through this area. Um, Hostility and fear are from internal corrupt data. 
and indicate my use of sustained incoherence to build this disturbing internal construct, my denial. Okay, blah, blah, blah. My story, my reality is that name the object of your attention, an area across town. Uh, name the object. Okay, breathe. So, so, so is, your story is yeah. your your story is what happened, right? And I so, drove, yeah, that's right. Start with I. I drove through this part of town, so the it's I is the focus of this, and you drove right. through a part of town. Okay, okay, that was creepy. That I thought was creepy. Truth is, my thoughts caused my emotional upset. The thoughts I use to cause this emotion is there's a lot of trouble here. Um, I have a lot of thoughts, actually. Um, Okay, so one of them is this place is creepy. Another one is there's a lot of trouble here. What's another one? People get hurt here. There's a lot of violence here. Okay, I I may get hurt here. Oh, I didn't think of it that way. I just thought other people are being hurt here. Okay, what we're looking for is the thought that would generate fear. Wow, okay. I have to sit for a second. I have so many ideas about the people who are living there. Linoleum's curling in their kitchen and there are bugs all around and they don't have enough money and there's abuse going on, Um, worry, misery, illness. I really have a dark idea of this area. I don't know whether that's too much stuff to go in this spot here. Well, but what we're looking for is for you to sift through the myriad of negative thoughts here and just pick the one that you're using to generate fear. You started the worksheet and said, I, Susan, who am love, am experiencing the emotion of fear. What happened? I drove through a particular part of town. My thought is, this place is creepy. My thought is, people get hurt here. And And then I said, okay, so your thought is, you may get hurt here. And you said, no, not me. Yeah. I'm not so sure that that's the most honest response, but I'll take it for now and let's explore. So what is the thought you're using to generate fear? Somehow, if I drive through here, I'm going to catch some of this. There isn't getting any getting through here without being it being sucked into my system or something. I'm going to catch despair so I'm writing down I'm going to catch despair so there's your thought and you certainly don't want to catch despair and that would generate fear for you Right. It has to do with other people, though, too. It's like, I'm not going to do anything about this. I can't do anything about this. Helplessness, I guess. 
Well, helplessness and despair, right? You're going to catch the despair. You're going to catch the thought of helplessness. You're going to become depressed, and you don't want that. Mm -hmm. That's that's the fear. That's the thought Mm -hmm. you're using to generate fear. So now how strong would you say the fear is before we started this worksheet? You know what? I have another thought that's even more relevant, I think. It's like fear, if fear this how, Yeah, this world is really dangerous and I've been living in a bubble. This is the way it really is. This is a really dangerous world. I can okay. come across that, town that, where I have a nice house. That, that would be a thought born from the despair you were afraid of catching. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay, I'll accept that. <laughs> so, okay. so this world is really dangerous. <laughs> this world is really dangerous. And you don't even need the part about I've been living in a bubble, right? Yeah. You just need the, this world is really dangerous. Okay. So then, how strong is your fear when you think this world is really dangerous? When you when when you were feeling it going through driving through that part of town, how strong was it? Zero to ten. I would say a seven, maybe. Okay. And the punishment thought you have for yourself is just to beat up on yourself emotionally. <laughs> enough I can come home to my bubble and not do anything about it because I can just label myself as a a rotten person who's only going to do a certain amount like two hours a week at the refugee center or something and otherwise I'm off the hook you drive there nobody's off the hook yeah okay okay you're beating up on yourself emotionally okay so now The worksheet also reminds us, if I'm in pain, my thinking is in error. Okay. And it it reminds me that I want to do a release and say I release and surrender myself and my emotions of fear and myself as the trigger and my story that this this world is really dangerous and I'm going to catch despair. And my punishment yeah. thought about beating up on myself, I'm surrendering all of that to love. And when I do this, <laughs> I take a breath and I, I, put, I put my initials in that little box. Right. Yeah, I do have the same worksheet because it's right there. Okay, release and surrender myself, my emotions, story, thoughts, and self-punishment. Okay, I'm not sure. I'm putting my initials there, and I do understand it. I don't know if I'm doing that, but maybe we should go on anyway. 
yes, we go on anyway because the more I practice this, this is just like what we were talking about yesterday and, and on the 7th when you did the worksheet. The more I yeah. practice saying it, the more it comes to have meaning for me over time. This is not okay. so much that I'm going to make this situation within me bend to my will. It's that I'm just going to practice that verbal release and it will come to have more and more meaning over time. Point two on this worksheet says, I choose to love truth and I willingly face and process out all of the dis-ease producing energies for and from all of my relations and generations. Mm-hmm. I agree to that. And then I willingly go through the physical, mental, and emotional symptoms of healing, put a check mark in that box and take a breath. Mm-hmm. And... What's the goal that you would like for you that if it were true, you wouldn't have any fear? That's that's tied into this thought that I'm going to catch despair and that this world is really dangerous. Or, okay, my thought... The exact goal that drives my pain perception. Okay, I think I've jumped to an enlightened goal already. Instead of this, I'll I'll save this for later. My desire. Exact goal that drives my pain perception is that this city be okay. The people right, in it be okay. City. Okay, but that's a goal for the city. You need a goal for you since you're 1C. I was driving through a part of town. I am afraid I'm going to catch despair. I believe this world is a really dangerous place. So what would be the goal for you that if it were different, if you were different in this way, there'd be no fear, there'd be no thought that this world is a really dangerous place and that I'm going to catch despair. Okay, well, that I could drive through there in a neutral way. And the uh, the enlightened goal would come right out of that because I don't want to be just neutral. I'm remembering Pradavand and I'm remembering Thaddeus Golas. He says, when it's that dark, you love it. Uh, I wasn't feeling any love, you know. I forgot to bless the whole place the way I might have. Yeah, I was too into the dark part. So your goal might be for you to live constantly connected to your awareness of your true nature as love. To, in other words, to shorten this, you would say, my goal is to always live as love. If you were able to always live from the knowledge of your your true nature as love, you wouldn't be in fear. And you would have been able to go through that drive and bless everyone and bless the situation. Does that fit as that a goal? That would... like, it does. It sounds like an enlightened goal, too, but it's a great goal. Right. But that's it. what we're looking for is if this were to magically happen, would it? Yeah wipe out the need to be doing this worksheet and it seems to fit right so my goal is yeah it to does always live 
as the presence of love or to always extend the presence of love. That's great. Okay. So my goal is to always live as the presence of love. Right, good. And then put a check mark in that box. And then there's mm-hmm. a cancellation on the right-hand side. It says, you know, if they're the one with the problem, why am I the one with the pain? And it says, I cancel my need to be right, and I cancel my need to make up another story out of these brain cells to hallucinate the proof that my fear and hostility-based story, that my reality is true. I cancel the need to prove that I'm right. Or to make up another rationalization about how my fear-based reality is true. And so if I give up this fear-based reality and I drive through town, I don't want to be blind either. Okay. I don't want to just... So, so yeah. don't worry about what will happen in the future. Let's stick to the worksheet. Okay. Right? Because what we know is if I can remove the hostility and fear filters from my mind, I will perceive everything more accurately and I will have better high-quality perception because I'm perceiving accurately and perceiving all the data points more clearly and then I'll make better decisions. Right. All right. Okay, that's so I'm good. not going to worry yeah. at this stage of the game. I'm not going to say, "Oh, this is going to turn me into some Pollyanna who's, you know, not able to see things and not able to respond to life." I'm not going to worry about that now. Okay. Because I know good. This whole situation is just to clear my perception. And when I have clearer perception, when my windshield is clear, I see better and I make better decisions. Right. All right, so step four is I choose love, which is my essence. Mm -hmm. And when I do that, it stirs the love in everyone involved. And that's the rose and the butterfly story. I remind myself of that. And in this process, when I do worksheets with people, I ask them to take a moment, put their hand over their heart space, and breathe, soften, and bring up one of the most loving, safe, peaceful memories, whether it's from your recent or distant past, and breathe into it and strengthen it until you shift the energy in your heart space in this very moment away from the fear involved in this worksheet process and over towards love. And just do that and breathe until you feel a shift and let us know when you've gotten a shift and we'll move on to step five. Can it be something really recent and kind of Mickey Mouse? Like, I really am crazy about a fat old orange cat that we have. If I just picture walking, watching him Perfect. break into a trot as he comes toward me, it's fantastic. Perfect. Is that good enough? Yeah, if it, absolutely. Okay. If it shifts the energy in your heart to one of joy okay. and aliveness, and just breathe into that, 
And then we'll move on to step okay. five. Step five says, when I'm upset, my perception is built out of corrupt data. It's driven by my goal in number three. And this is a limiting mm-hmm. picture constructed from a maximum of nine bits of data when 10,000 brain cells are firing. So by canceling my replicate mind's reality and by canceling my goal, my replicate mind's reality collapses and it gives me direct contact with the denied and dissociated parts of my carbon-based memory, that, that part of my mind that just records things and spits it out. Because what happens is that carbon-based memory has been trained to project and blame others for its content. So while I'm okay. holding love, conscious, active, and present, while I'm thinking about that chubby little cat trotting towards me, I choose to collapse my mind's lies by willingly canceling my goal to always live as the presence of love. Whoa, that's and write a that in there. Yeah. I cancel my goal to always live as the presence of love and breathe and soften. Okay. And put a check mark in that box. Mm Mm-hmm. And then who do you want to invite to help you process through this? Who or what? God. All right. Whoever knows better than I do. (laughs) Okay. All right. So God, light, love. This ancient Aramaic word, Ruka de Kucha, is there to represent the elemental force specific to humans that's there to break off the effects of our errors in thought and guide us to truth and happiness if we simply ask it to. Some In the ancient Aramaic, that was the word Ruka de Kucha. When people were yeah. looking back at that in the English and Greek and, and Latin, they were saying, oh, that that means Holy Spirit. But I'm going to ask God, light, love, something outside of me, something higher wisdom than me, to incline me toward healing, to restore me to the awareness of my newborn essence as love, to heal my denial and heal my capacity to generate fear, the emotion in this Mm -hmm. worksheet, and to Mm -hmm. help me open a direct conscious relationship with and to gently remove whatever's been denied and dissociated and then projected into different parts of my brain, my carbon-based memory. So now we'll go into the patter release. Just breathe and soften. When I do this, I like to close my eyes and put my hand over my heart space and just silently inside your own mind repeat what I'm going to say out loud. I cancel my need to be right. I cancel my need for anyone or anything to change, including myself. I specifically cancel my goal in this worksheet. I put my conscious, logical mind on the shelf for now, and I ask to be shown the hidden part of my own mind that's actually creating this upset. And then I want to just breathe and soften and put myself in the most open allowing space I can and trust that anything that comes into my mind is going to be part of what I need to see to begin to heal here and move forward, whether it's a sight or a sound or a physical sensation or a thought or a memory or an emotion. I just breathe and soften and I trust it's all old stuff. It can't hurt me any more than it already has. So if I get an image, 
I want to study it up close as it washes over me, whether that's an emotion that washes through me or a thought or a trauma memory. And if I have a thought come up from an earlier time in my life, I just want to breathe and soften and notice how old am I, where am I, who else is there, and what's happening. And just breathe. And stay with that process, gently repeating, I cancel my need to be right. I cancel my need for anyone or anything to change, including myself. I specifically cancel my goal in this worksheet. I put my conscious logical mind down for a nap right now, and I ask to be shown the hidden part of my own mind that's actually creating this upset. And just stay with that process until one of three things happens. Either you get a deep insight or you flash to an earlier time in your life where there was something occurring that you can be specific about. Or you get a shift in your energy so there's less intensity up in your energy field right now. Or you realize that your thoughts are just going to spin and go nowhere. And when one of those three things has happened... Take a nice, deep, cleansing breath and let it all go. And scan your body and notice what's the strongest emotion and or physical sensation you're aware of right now. Yeah. I always think it's going to be something really early, but this memory I think is good. I think this is it. When I was get? in college, when I was in college, I was a freshman in college. It's a college, Sarah Lawrence. I went to Sarah Lawrence. My reason for going there was so I could take part in worship services on Sunday down in Teaneck, New Jersey. What a weird reason to go. I've probably said this on the show before. Uh, I went, I applied to this school. I liked it very much, but my main reason, which I didn't tell them, was that I wanted to be able to visit a woman that I was really in love with, who had been a counselor at a camp. She wasn't the counselor I mentioned before. Concert pianist studying at Juilliard, and I was studying at Sarah Lawrence, and she belonged to a cult. And they met on Sundays and had their services in the evenings on Sundays and I wanted to be with them and be a part of their church and be able to be with her. So five o'clock in the morning on Sundays, I'd get on the train and travel to Teaneck, New Jersey, which met a couple of a train and a bus and all sorts of things. Well, the, the areas we went through were like this, area that I was talking about the beginning of my worksheet kind of tumble down poor crowded houses and I would imagine that people in there were suffering terribly of loneliness mainly I guess it was loneliness and unrequited love and all sorts of things. I just projected all that, and I'd travel through these areas and look at them. Then I'd get to where I was going, 
and go through the day. And we'd have these huge, she was part of a huge family. And there's a lot to tell about that, but I won't. But in any case, and then I would travel back early the next morning. I'd catch a train and buses back to school. But I remember feeling the same way about those cities and towns I traveled through. And my experience with her was ended up being very traumatic. And I could go into that too, but I don't need to. But anyway, the memory is there. Okay, so I I would encourage you to, you know, if you have a worksheet in front of you, flip it over and write some of this on the back. Traumatic outcome with that relationship. Okay. Unrequited love in the relationship. You had fears that people were going to be lonely, that you were driving past, and they would be full of unrequited love. So you're projecting all of this. A kind of emotional poverty. Yeah. Yeah, and it was just what you were experiencing and you were projecting Mm -hmm. on them, and it was paired with that... I was looking at it physically. External vision, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. your internal emotional poverty and need for outside validation to feel something that had driven you to this traveling on this train and going to this school just so you could be around this woman, all of that was getting paired with energetically yeah. resonating with that outside image of these run-down houses and this low-rent part of town, et cetera. Yeah. So just make some notes about that. So that all these different details, and you, you say that at least two different times, and I could go into that, but I won't. But make some notes for yourself yeah. about that before it yeah. flies away. Mm-hmm. Some key mm-hmm. words that you can just write on the back of the sheet of paper that you can, um, you know, flesh out later after we're done with wrapping up the worksheet. Because it's up yeah, now. It's so it just much. came up in this association. And if you don't write it down, it'll fly away. Yeah. Okay, this is really good. And the good news is this is recorded so you can go back and listen. So you can make notes when you go back and listen to it if you need to. But what we tell people most of the time their worksheets aren't recorded and we say when this happens right now flip the page over and make some notes while it's still up in conscious awareness. So if you would, just so we don't, run out of time completely here let's have you scan your body and notice what's the strongest emotion or physical sensation you're aware of right now I just feel out of breath okay Um, out of breath but I'm writing in number 6a yeah just complete dereliction like bottom of the barrel human just the most hungry person okay the most hungry person 
like you're craving something you can't you can't get enough of and you're not satisfied. Most hungry person. Shamefully too. Of course you'll generate shame from that. You have very good training about how to generate shame from that. All right, so mm-hmm. 6C is I ask to be shown a time when I have not fulfilled always living as the presence of love. That's a pretty simple one. And you can just, you can see that you already flash back to a time where you weren't living as the presence of love. You were living from the belief that you needed love from this outside person. And you then were living I flipped as though right over. You were in emotional poverty, and then you flip right over to what? Oh, I stoned those fish. I know I've okay. talked about them before. Yep. There'll be a whole series of those that will come up if you let them. Yeah. And then, in in the worksheet, the next thing is to say, I, I commit to love and to living a human life. And so I put a check mark in that box and I say, to help achieve this, I'm going to do a mass canceling of all the times I've wanted anybody to live as the presence of love. Whether it was a family member or a friend or a professor or the people in the town that I was driving by or that I was passing through on the train, I'm canceling all the times I wanted people, anybody, to always live as the presence of love. Okay. I don't know where that is in the worksheet. I wrote it on the back. That's that's that? number three. That's number three. That's your goal. Oh, okay, got it. Where where okay. what is on the work? Oh yeah, yeah, I see it. Okay. It's in the little box. Yeah. And then number seven says a principle of the universe is that by giving, I first get the original. So I'm going to be grateful for this opportunity to heal. I'm going to choose truth. And I'm going to choose perfect love. And the truly loving goal I'm going to structure toward myself in this situation is what? Well, it sounds really, really... I want to practice the gentle art of blessing onto myself. And then I want to practice it onto all those derelict houses that I drive through, those towns I drive through on my way anywhere, anybody's poor town. All right. So let's say you're going to practice the gentle art of blessing for how long? How many minutes for yourself? How many minutes for the town? It wouldn't be like that. It would be like a habit. All right. But do it... Do it time-limited for the next day or two as a goal. If you're setting it for a goal, you want it to be something that's specific and time-limited so you can know at the end of a day you either accomplished it and you might set the same goal again the next day or you failed to accomplish it and you're going to cancel it for that day and reset it for another day. This is managing the stress in your mind and and doing something specifically to improve 
your energy around this set of issues. So you're going to practice the gentle art of blessing for yourself for how many minutes, today or tomorrow? A minute minute for me and a (laughs) minute. I said a minute for me and a minute for the others. That's not much, but I think I can can do that. But can you do five minutes? I don't want to, but I will. What do you want to do? What what will you commit to doing? Two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, what? All right, I'll do three minutes. You drive a hard bargain there, Dr. Tim. I have this jumpy mind. To do that for a whole three minutes without interruption, I don't know. It's just a matter of having a monkey mind, but yeah, okay. All right, and then if you take a breath and scan your body, what would you say your upset level is right now? Well, it's pretty much down to zero. One, maybe. I don't know. I can't tell. I just, it's a whole idea, this thing, this new idea. I'll put two. All right. Definitely successful wake-up sheet. All right. Well, there you have it. And you've got some, you know, writing you can do about those random thoughts, or you can listen back to the archives and make some notes about all those little thoughts that you were mentioning that you say, I could go into this, but I won't. I could go into this, but I won't. (laughs) Well, they're just the story, you know, the story. Right, right. But but because because those stories resonated, it would be good to get them down Mm -hmm. on paper so they're not just floating around in your mind. Yeah, I got it. Okay, I did jot them down, and I I just found another one to put there, too. This goes right up into the present. This what? So very, this, this, this perspective and this work and this worksheet applies right up into the present. Yeah, and you, you will you will probably uncover a whole host of worksheets that would be good for you to do about this set of memories and this woman that you had all of this affection for that was not returned that ended up a traumatic, you know, I forget the exact words you used, but traumatic outcome. And and that's just the, the way to really get powerful results from a worksheet is follow these memories, these thoughts, these associations, and even if they're, they seem like it's just a toss-off, do a worksheet on them. Oh, yeah. So we've got just a few minutes left. Area code 828, you're in the air. Hi, this is Magda. I, I'm calling to congratulate both of you. That was fabulous. Thank you so much, uh, Susan, for doing it and yesterday's worksheet as well. Um, so I wanted to say that. Thank you, thank you. And also, Susan, in regard to your monkey mind, um, you will be distracted. You will think of other things in those three minutes. doesn't matter. All you need to do is bring your attention back 
to what you want your intention is, um, attention and intention. So that's all I wanted to say. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Mm. Okay. I will mute and um, listen to the rest. All right. Thank you. Blessings. Well, Susan, I have um, tremendous gratitude for your willingness to share this work, both um, last Friday and uh, yesterday and now again today. Um, Well, and thanks to you, too, for being the bumpers at the bowling alley again. As I get off on these things, I get off track. This is, I learned much more than I thought I would doing this worksheet. I even wondered if it was the kind of worksheet that ought to be done on a radio show, but thanks. It was good. Yeah, yeah, there there really isn't a just a a specific kind that should be done on the radio. That that's not really the way this works. If you've got a worksheet, it's valid to do it. You've got a topic. You've got a negative emotion. You have a negative thought. You've got an event that happened, and you're not sure what the negative thought or emotion is, but you keep thinking of that event. Any of those things yeah. can Good. be turned into a productive worksheet. Mm. And I have deep gratitude for you to be willing to share that. It's it's wonderful. It's powerful, just like the support group last night when people were calling in and saying, um, life-saving, th- this is the same kind of thing. It's life-changing work you're doing, and it's a, a gift to be sharing it with others. So I, I thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks very much, too. All right. Blessings. I will mute you so you can listen in. During that uh, worksheet process, uh, Jeannie let me know that they're stuck somewhere, and so the second hour today is going to be a recording. I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. This is your second hour. It's quite common as people begin to understand this work for them to flip-flop between clarity and their old beliefs. This is to be expected as one learns a new conceptual language and a new way of thinking. Richard was no exception to this rule. I don't quite get it yet, but I'm beginning to realize how easy it is to lapse into my old beliefs, and it doesn't feel very good. I'm not quite sure what you mean. An hour ago, I grasped the idea that healing and responsibility are an inside job. It was very clear to me then. Then I reverted to my old hostility, my cynicism and blame. I'm sorry I jumped all over you about the Aramaic, Michael. Well, may I offer a different thought, Richard? Well, yeah. People who say, I'm sorry a lot, usually end up being sorry people. In this work, we have an alternative to that. If you wish to apologize, go ahead, but drop the idea of being sorry. Replace it with a statement of what you intend to do if that situation arises in the future. Okay, I'm feeling a little bit lost. It's like I'm back where I I started. I'm ready to jump whole hog into blame again, and I don't understand how I lost the level of insight I had. I don't have any idea what you mean when you suggest replacing saying I'm sorry. It's natural at this stage, with two belief systems fighting for your attention, to waver in your clarity. 
You're doing just fine on that count. The alternative to I'm sorry would sound something like, I apologize for taking out my hostility on you, Michael. In the future, if anger or resentment come up in me, I will breathe and work toward taking responsibility for my upset. I commit myself to being responsible for my feelings and breathing instead of attacking. This is so simple. Why didn't I think of it? Practice. All of these tools are simple. It's just a matter of retraining our minds to think differently. In the Aramaic thought system, this issue was addressed by the statement that we would be transformed by the renewal of our minds. I acknowledged him and assured him that he was doing fine and that as he practiced using the tools, it would get easier to hold this new thought structure when old patterns kicked in. When you become aware or conscious of your own behavior and the inclinations that come from your internal reality structure, you've made a giant leap. It usually takes much longer before someone can see the inconsistencies in their thoughts, words, or behaviors. We call a loss of awareness of one's internal processes going unconscious. Catching yourself at that is a wonderful skill to develop. Right. Take my word for it. Catching yourself is a good thing. Honest. It reflects the undoing of blockage of truth. A powerful step. In addition to the frustration of feeling like he was slipping back into old thinking patterns, Richard also had 20 questions begging to be answered all at once. This happens as people get more involved in this study. It can be difficult to keep the issues and insights straight. Some circling through and around the questions that come up is inevitable. This work, with its synthesis of so many disciplines, is a lot of information to digest in one sitting. It takes patience and time to build the brain cells and integrate those disciplines so that the tools become fully available and functional. There's an intricate pattern of interconnectedness which one must usually step back to see. As you do your work and sit with the insights that come, you will see how all of your life is synchronized. You might want to reread the first insight from the Celestine Prophecy. Richard still looked a little bewildered and once again was holding his breath. Keep breathing. Healing looks like this, Richard. When old trash surfaces, it's not fun, but sorting through it and sorting through what comes up in the presence of love is what clears it out. Can you remember feeling this lack of clarity ever before? <laughs> Why don't you just ask me about my whole life? Oh, oh, I get it. Why should I expect to deal with everything in an instant when it's taken me many years to get to where I am today? Is that right? Yep. I've had years of practice at maintaining hostility, <laughs> and I was a, a perfectionist at harboring a loveless mind. Well, as I said, it's a process. Does this mean I have to go digging through and re-experiencing everything in my past? I don't want to do that. No, there's no digging around required. If you practice and get good at re-experiencing your past, that's what you'll be good at, re-experiencing your past. The practice with these tools is to hold a space of love within yourself and live in today's world from that perspective. If something less than love surfaces at any time, use the tools. As you do this, things from your past that impact your present perceptions will surface to be healed. You can only deal with and heal your reality structure in the present. Are you breathing, Richard? Breathing? Why do you keep bugging me about breathing? What's the big deal? Hey, I'm on your side, remember? I'm here to support your healing. Recall when we spoke about how pain gets locked into a reality? Holding your breath causes feelings and events to be linked and stored as a unit. 
The energy of an experience you're having is suppressed into tissue when the breath is held. Rather than staying stuck and upset, if you breathe, it is easier for old patterns to break loose and distasteful present moment experiences to pass. The breath is the switch that either restricts or allows energy to move in your system. Keeping your breath open makes healing much easier. That fits for me. I'm just now recalling that when I was a kid, I was told over and over again that I was a sinner. I think that that may have done more to drive me away from the church than the hypocrisy I saw. When you remind me to breathe, it feels like that old pain of being condemned. Well, let's process through what's happening and look at it step by step. Wait a minute. What is processing? Well, I pretty much described it, but processing is defined as the capacity to hold love conscious, active, and present when something less than love surfaces. It's the main key in healing. It releases the painful component of every reality unlike love. It is not an intellectual process, though the intellect can initiate it. Processing releases aliveness within. Once its energy starts to move in you, you can never be the same again. You are changed and transformed forever. When it happens, it may be like a lightning bolt or a gentle breeze. It doesn't matter. Its stirrings are often unconscious at first. You may not know what has happened, but you will know that something has occurred. Value it, treasure it. It is the active power of love reorganizing the core of your being and the expression of the cause of your existence. That makes sense and definitely sounds like something I want. Let's go ahead and see if I can process what just occurred. Your pain around taking on the sinner label may have stemmed from your beliefs about being unjustly accused. We had recently discussed your having been called a sinner, so the idea of being unjustly accused was just beneath the surface in your mind. By repeatedly reminding you to breathe, that which was close to the surface was triggered. My reminders easily resonated your old feelings about being accused and doing something wrong. Remember, old suppressed realities distort perception. As a kid, you were probably told a thousand times you were a sinner, and each time your pain was reinforced. Your outburst about breathing was aimed at what triggered this old pain, my reminder to breathe. Your hidden agitation was expressed as unconscious behavior, an attack toward me. Recall your intention when you apologized to me earlier? Yes, I'm willing to be responsible for what I feel, and I'll continue to breathe. I really appreciate your sticking with me through all of this, Michael. A few minutes ago, your reminder seemed like a hassle. Now I feel grateful for it. I can see that a reminder to breathe and the surfacing of old agitation is an opportunity to heal the feelings I have about being called a sinner and, and also being condemned. It was not a reason to attack. I wouldn't have guessed there were so many dynamics under the surface driving my behavior. Is this the source of unconsciousness? Unconsciousness, projection, and externalization. Notice the agitation you had was actually about being called a sinner, something that perhaps you'd not heard in decades. Your old feelings were triggered by my reminder, and you projected your upset into your mind's image of me. Uh, uh, hold on. I think I'm understanding unconsciousness, but what you just said about projection went right over my head. Remember the physicist's point of view that everything is energy? The bottom line is that there is no physical world. Okay, but what does that have to do with projection? Everything. In truth, 
The world is a whirring mass of energy, a sea of motion with nothing solid. No thing exists apart from that energy. The mind is what generates the image that things are solid. The mind, because of its training, blocks the evidence that all things are connected and provides the illusory image that everything is separated. The only place a body exists is as an image in the mind. The suppressed energies you hold from an old experience, when triggered by someone, are used by your mind as the foundation of the image it generates of them. We cannot see a suppressed attribute someone triggers as our own because it shows up in our minds as belonging to them. We actually project our attribute into our brain's image of them. Ah, the relief of successful projection. Hmm. One problem remains, however. Why am I the one with the pain if it's their error? Why am I the one that's there every single time? In the Aramaic scriptures, this is the issue that was being referenced when they said, Beware you who judge another, for that in which you judge another, you have been guilty of practicing. Let's look at the Aramaic concept of sin. I think you'll find it will tie this all together in a way that makes sense. I invite you to notice how practical and informative these Aramaic ideas are when you see them in the context of real life. Here we go with sin again. Michael, I don't know whether to love you or hate you. I feel inspired and overwhelmed at the same time. I grasp something new and feel great about it, and in the next breath, see a whole new dynamic to figure out and heal. It seems like the more I hear of the, what you say, the more work I realize I have to do. Does it ever end? I'm not sure when the end comes. Again, I remind you, it's a process. Your feeling overwhelmed is pretty much on track for where you are. Almost everyone cycles through this stage several times as they learn this work. The healing accelerates as you develop the capacity to hold a space of conscious, active, present love while unresolved issues surface. What? What? I can't even say it, let alone do it. What does it mean? That's a key question, and before we get into an emotionally loaded concept like sin, let's talk about the power of holding a space of love and how to do it. exercise I know to practice and strengthen your ability to hold a space of love is to close your eyes and allow yourself to just become quiet. With your awareness focused inside, think of that which inspires in you the clearest, strongest, most powerful love you're capable of feeling. What if I feel nothing? In my workshops, Richard, I often ask the question, do you remember a time when you looked at the way people around you lived their lives and asked yourself, if things were supposed to work this way? The majority of people answer a resounding, yes, I remember. When quizzed further, virtually everyone says they remember knowing when life was about love, caring, and support. Each then recounts how they cut themselves off from love. Each generation of children is seduced into giving up their experience of a world based on love. They exchange this for a world controlled through fear, anger, and manipulation. They're often taught that this trade-off is the only way to get things and be successful in the real world. The ancient Aramaic teachings warned us to be careful that we do not allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. If we allow ourselves to fall into the world's ways, we cut ourselves off from love. It then feels like a void 
when we first attempt to return to the experience of love as we do in this exercise. If you continue to practice over time, the experience of love will grow. Once you feel love, imagine yourself intensifying it until it fills every cell in your body. Take another breath. Intensify that love. The next step is to open your eyes and imagine extending that love out through your eyes to someone or to some situation in your world. Another step is to enfold yourself in that love and, when possible, look in a mirror as you do so. Invest some time in this exercise and soon you will come to find conscious, active, present love is a part of your vocabulary and your life. When Richard first called me, he was on his way to the West to start a new life. Now he asked if a simpler solution might not be to just move on. After all, if there's no one to trigger the pain, then life's fine. For many people, the geographic cure is an option, but it's only a temporary solution. The problem with the geographic cure is that we take ourselves and our whole reality structure with us and attract similar situations as a result. Running away does not work because the painful reality is carried within the person running. The only permanent solution is to understand and heal what is at the root of the reality structure causing the pain. Holding a space of love while the underlying reality surfaces is how we heal. I want you to focus on holding a space of love for yourself as we talk about sin, Richard. Watch what surfaces and be aware of your present moment realities. Most of us have bought into sin as something terrible and awful. It's something we've been taught to feel guilty and bad about. Sin was originally meant to be positive feedback. The English translation of the Aramaic word kata is sin. It's an archery term. When you fired a target and missed the bullseye, the scorekeeper yelled, sin. It meant you're off the mark, which in practical terms means improper for your energy system or less than your highest and best. It does not mean you are evil, damned, or should be groveling in the dirt. The simple implication is to adjust your aim. It's time to take another shot. It's time to do something different in your life. The human energy system is based on love and created in the image and likeness of love. When you put an energy that is less than what is proper into that system, you defile or destroy it. Engaging only in energies that support your energy system was called living in accord with the law. In the interest of self-preservation, it is good to have accurate feedback and know when you are off the mark or have sinned. Well, that sure puts things in a different light. Yes, and it is also interesting to see that the Aramaic understanding of life is reinforced and proven by the latest in physics. If we could ask Albert Einstein about the world we call physical, he would tell us it does not exist. He would tell us that matter is energy that appears as a solid. The Aramaic scriptures refer to the world of appearances, cautioning not to judge by them. If we think the world is physical, we've judged by its appearance, not the fact of what it is. Is it possible that the world is energy, void of solid form and organized by the mind into the appearance of form? If all is energy, the body, in Aramaic the temple, is energy. 
Recall that relative to every energy system, there are basically two qualities of energy, that which builds the system up, integrative or lawful energy, and that which tears the system down, disintegrative or unlawful energy. And so sin doesn't refer to me as a person? It, it's just information, just feedback? If somebody of integrity told me that I had sinned, he would simply be informing me that I made an error. Yes. In the ancient Aramaic times, if someone did not understand the intricacies of the human energy system, that person might go to a specialist for advice. That specialist would point out one's violations of the laws of the human energy system, calling them sins, and rather than condemning, invite healing. It still feels like the old guilt trip. Or uh, how do you say it, Michael? Um, the reality of guilt is surfacing in my mind again? Hey, that sounds like a more accurate and responsible way of saying it, Richard. Guilt is a human invention designed to change human behavior. Unfortunately, its effect is more often the reverse. It keeps people locked into their errors rather than prompting release from them. Have you noticed that guilt usually precedes an act? It is an emotional energy that keeps the error in the forefront of the mind. People tend to be attracted to the behaviors that connect them to the most energy. Program guilt perpetuates behaviors that seem to cause guilt. You mean that guilt causes the behavior rather than the behavior causing the guilt? Are you saying that guilt is purposely instilled to control people? Perhaps. A false specialist in the ancient teachings called the priestcraft was one who didn't know any better or wanted to control those who consulted him. He would connect sin with guilt, bad and wrong, and use those energies to bind someone through unconsciousness to servitude. Guilt is a connection in the mind between error and self-condemnation for that error and is a sin in itself, an unlawful energy in which to engage. The specialist with integrity, known as the priesthood, would use the same opportunity, the same sin, to teach the inquiring mind how to forgive and release itself from its errors, its sins, including guilt. It would be accurate to call the integrative form of energy holy, rooted in the word whole, that which supports or builds the human system. The disintegrative we might call evil. Evil is bisha in Aramaic, and it's another archery term. Sin is missing the bullseye, and evil means off-target, missing the target altogether. An evil life in Aramaic is one where one continuously engages in disintegrative energies, thus defiling their own temple, creating disease and self-destruction. In Aramaic, there was no moral component to the instruction, stay away from an evil person. It was pure pragmatism. If you associate with those who engage in disintegrative, self-destructive, or evil acts, their actions will soon appear normal. Making a behavior appear normal is a first step in persuading others to do the same. When I was a kid, they always threatened me with death because I had sin. What about that part of the Bible? Well, the reason you were told about sin in a threatening way was projection. Those who promote that type of interpretation are caught in their own sin, fear. Fear clouds the minds and destroys the bodies of those who engage in it. That is why in the Aramaic scriptures we are told the first law was that of love. In the Aramaic understanding, the law and its prophets hang upon the condition of love in a mind, not on fear which produces unconsciousness and error. Without the condition of love continuously present, 
the searching mind will project its own errors into what it studies and whatever or whomever it sees. Only a mind connected to love has healed its capacity to project and can hold a true spiritual perspective on life. Only that mind can understand the Law and the Prophets. All others will distort their mind's view of the scriptures by projecting their own pain, fear, hate, and or rage into them. This produces a mind so insane that it can conceive of punishment, torture, and murder in the name of love as logical, reasonable, and the holy thing to do. Richard, the wages of sin is death, loses its threatening component when it's translated in the Aramaic language. It is not even a religious concept. It's a statement of simple physiology and a caution to be aware of the energies in which you engage. When you focus on energies that are inappropriate to your health, prosperity, and wholeness, you are living in sin. Bring enough disintegrative energy into any system and it will fall apart and die. The result of error is self-destruction. In Aramaic, energies of hate, fear, anger, envy, guilt, jealousy, condemnation, gossip, and the like are understood to be disintegrative. They defile or violate the integrity of the temple and eventually produce death in the person who engages in them. If you entertain those energies in your mind, no matter how justified you may seem, you are the one who receives the original of that destructive energy. The person you projected on only gets a carbon copy. That's what the scriptures were attempting to teach. The world just didn't get the message. The way fear is promoted in the media and in the world is almost like worship. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, we can tune in to an information system that gives us the details from anywhere on the planet of the most terrible acts of humanity. It could be construed that fear has been purposely used to keep people in confusion, fear, and overwhelm in order to control them. It's almost like I've kept myself in prison by living in ignorance of this and allowing myself to be indoctrinated by fear and manipulation. It's a pretty sobering thought to realize that I have been a manipulator and have purposely used that tactic by inspiring fear in people with whom I live. From what I had been taught, it seemed like a normal way to act. I see why it is important to be informed about these issues and why it is beneficial to be able to distinguish between integrative and disintegrative energies. I'm beginning to understand that we are responsible for what we set up in life. Exactly, Richard. In the Aramaic, fear was not promoted nor worshipped. It was treated as a demon and cast out. It was an energy to be forgiven. To emphasize condemnation and abuse and batter people with fear rather than encourage the expression and experience of love and the forgiveness of fear is error. It's a sin. It's a signal that a person does not understand the Aramaic teaching nor the effects of a particular behavior on their own physiology. He or she does not understand how focusing on disintegrative energy produces disease in themselves. Fear, anger, threat, guilt, manipulation, confusion, and overwhelm are the disintegrative energies at the root of all disease processes. The time delay between engaging in destructive behavior and the diseases that are sure to follow hides the cause-effect relationship between the two. It is then easy to blame our diseases on outside forces like bacteria, viruses, and the like. More blame, projection, and externalization. I can hear myself making excuses for my diseases. I've caught the latest bug. It couldn't possibly be anything that I've done. Seriously, though, I think I'm really starting to hear what you're saying. See if this fits. 
I'm the one who has been there every time I've experienced anger, fear, or guilt. I cannot feel those things unless they are inside me. And if they are, they are a burden to my system. They are my dis-ease. As Richard spoke, his hands were as animated as his face. He was obviously delighted with the depth of his understanding. The man sitting beside me now looked much lighter and more relaxed than the one who arrived earlier in the day. The way you present spiritual teachings, Michael, makes them sound simple, straightforward, and workable. They almost seem necessary to life. It never occurred to me that spirituality was so fundamental to living. I rejected spirituality and religion totally due to the bitterness of my early experiences. It seems like I've been carrying the burden of rejecting my religion for an eternity. No wonder I'm exhausted. For years, without knowing what I was doing, I've been hiding a lot of pain from myself as I've bought into the label of sinner. It sounds like it's time for me to forgive my distorted realities about religion. people, Richard, who have rejected one of the most vital parts of their lives, their spirituality. My observation is that those who do this are usually people who've listened to someone with no practical spiritual savvy. Years of study and intellectual knowledge about doctrine or religion do not necessarily mean that one has had any actual spiritual experience. Translations of the Aramaic teachings are so distorted today, I often wonder if it has been done purposely. I felt my own upset at that thought. The translations appear sound, but are twisted just enough to cover the wisdom that was available through the original words. I'm always amazed by people who've studied Greek interpretations, often called translations, of Aramaic teachings, yet have no interest in the actual meanings of what they've studied. Without access to the originally intended meanings, which can only be understood through a comprehension of the conceptual framework of the Aramaic mind, it is difficult for people to apply the tools that were originally taught. Sound teachings have gone from being practical and down-to-earth tools to being impractical and unattainable. As a result, people miss out on the knowledge, understanding, healing benefits, and comfort provided by the original teachings. Well, why would the teachings be distorted? There are three possibilities I see. One is that the expression of the ideas could have been limited by the ability of the language into which they were translated. Recall the two-dimensional creature we talked about earlier had no words to express the truth about the three-dimensional world. A language is limited to expressing only ideas and understanding for which it has words. A second possibility is the level of understanding of the translators who had little or no actual experience with the transforming power of the teachings. Without realizing it, they watered down this powerful ancient wisdom to their limited capacity. Can you possibly translate something beyond your level of comprehension? Well, I'm not sure what you're saying, Michael. Well, let's use an example. Would you want to go into a chemistry lab and perform a complex and dangerous experiment on the instructions of a first-year chem student who doesn't even know the language of higher chemistry? Well, of course not. Uh, I would want a competent, experienced instructor who knows. I would want the input of someone who had actually performed the experiment and had it work. Would it be wise to demand the same from the person you choose to assist you in your spiritual process? 
naturally. I have yet to meet a perfected person, but it seems sensible to choose a teacher who at least understands the first law, the law of love, one with actual spiritual experience and with the ability to inspire the same. Would it be equally wise to qualify the person who helps you reach a conclusion about whether such a thing as a spiritual dimension even exists? Many have never thought of consciously choosing their spiritual leaders or considered what the appropriate criteria for making that choice is. There are voices in the world that scream, there is no spiritual life, all religion is a hoax. It amazes me how many people unthinkingly follow the advice of these voices. Have you ever asked yourself what qualifies them to give you advice? I find the fact that people listen to these voices especially shocking when I consider that the majority of those advisors are screaming out of their own pain, which tends to render them unconscious. Many tend to listen to those voices and, in succeeding years, when the words of the unqualified echo in their heads, they mistake those thoughts as their own. I've never heard anyone who's had a spiritual experience say such things as, hoax, there is no spiritual life. I've also observed many who have said such things change their mind very quickly when they have an actual spiritual experience. Hmm. What is the third cause that you had in mind when you spoke of the reasons for distortion, Michael? The third possibility I see is that the teachings were purposely falsified to mislead and control people. I see why there is so much conflict, confusion, and infighting among spiritual groups. It sounds like each of us has to take responsibility for our own process, clean up our own minds, and choose our teachers wisely. As a young man, I dumped all involvement with anything that smacked of spiritual content as a result of my religious upbringing. I also fell into thinking things would make me happy. Now I'm seeing that no matter how much I have, if I don't work out, what is in my own head, possessions alone won't satisfy me or bring me peace, not peace or happiness or security. I agreed. Things can be nice to have. They can bring comfort, but comfort does not heal. Only with tools designed to complete the task can we heal our pain. Seeking out real tools seems like a sensible thing to do. Spirituality has always been the place where healing tools are found. Religious movements based on spiritual experiences of others sometimes carry through with that purpose and sometimes go in the opposite direction, taking advantage of and attempting to control people by inflicting pain rather than healing it. Where you go for spiritual advice is important. It's interesting to note that people who take the advice of only the best lawyers, who travel the world in search of the top physicians, who want only the soundest of financial advisors, will accept the opinions of those with little or no experience when it comes to spiritual matters. Does that make sense when making decisions could have long-term consequences? Well, now, where can I learn to make those decisions, Michael? It helps to build some brain cells about the ways spiritual teachings are used in our culture. I think you'll find that will clarify the process of choosing. There are two types of spiritual teachers. One are the true spiritual teachers, called the priesthood. They use spiritual teachings to liberate people from their pain and the habits that produce pain and suffering. This style of teaching comes from those who inspire and motivate others by example. They have spiritual experience and they're accomplished in that realm. The fruit or result of these teachers' work is a shift from the insanity, hatred, and what I like to call the little violences of the world to peace, love, and abundance. 
These teachers, while not perfect, focus on their own work. Their hand is always out, compassionately extended for the purpose of supporting anyone who is healing and accepting support for their work in the world. Second type, false teachers, called the priest craft, use spiritual teachings deviously. Under the guise of a promise to save or liberate people from present or future pain and suffering, they use threat and fear tactics to drive people deeper into their trauma. Often, suffering is promoted as good and necessary, and the promise of liberation applies to some sort of an afterlife, which cannot be proven nor disproven. These so-called teachers also have a handout, but it is accumulating for themselves or their organizations and using some form of threat or fear tactic to keep people in tow. The false teacher uses religion to acquire political, financial, and or behavioral control over people. The incentive for the weak or insecure to enter this type of religious order and join the ranks of false teachers is evident. A disproportionate percentage of the assets, power, sexual favors, and money of the people they control and manage accrues to them. It sounds like pretty heavy condemnation, Michael. I thought this work was supposed to be positive in its thinking. I don't know if I want to hear this. I understand where you're coming from, Richard. If you were in a prison and did not know it, would you need to understand something about its structure in order to find your way out? Mm -hmm. If from within your prison walls you said to me, Michael, I'm a positive thinker. Don't tell me I'm in prison or how I got here. Just show me out. Wouldn't it be foolish to lead you to the high fence knowing you'd be stuck there without the ladder? If you had allowed the space for me to tell you about the high fence beforehand, you could have gotten the ladder from the basement in advance. Knowing what we're dealing with can be a practical help to us. Planning ahead and being prepared for what we will encounter is sometimes more important than all the positive thinking the world has to offer. Showing up at the fence without a ladder is doing life the hard way. I'm here to support you in making life easy and joyful, meeting your challenges with the practical tools and knowledge you need. I support you in meeting the obstacles in life with ladder in hand, that is, living life from an empowered state. I'm willing to have that support and have life be easier. I'm just not clear yet about how this fits into uh, being a positive thinker. I've always been told I should be more positive. I've been working on that. This work is not about being a positive thinker. That can get you into a lot of trouble. What are you talking about, Michael? Uh, my friend, who insisted I call you, said the work you have been uh, developing is the ultimate form of positive thinking. This work is about honest and appropriate thinking, Richard. There is a disorder that I call premature positive thinking. If you have a negative foundation and refuse to deal with it, positive thinking is very appealing. It becomes another way to avoid. There is a benefit to positive thinking. Life improves. The problem, as I've observed it, is that the premature positive thinker has to be on top of things all the time. The stress of keeping the negative down with a positive attitude means there's never a minute's rest. Premature positive thinking can lead to becoming the type A personality. It can result in overload, and if you let up on the positive even for a moment, things start to crash. The benefits disappear, and you get to start over. It's a difficult way to live. Premature positive thinking also produces disease. Appropriate and honest thinking is the goal. The only healing and truly restorative processes are those which allow stored negativity to be surfaced, exposed to love, and released. Let go of the need to build a positive framework on top of a negative foundation. 
acquire tools, and deal with the negativity as you develop the capacity to naturally and gracefully live from the positive. In this system, there is no stress from trying to keep a falsehood in place. There is no pretentious thinking because everything less than positive is given the space to surface and heal. In the short term, it takes extra work and commitment to do what I'm suggesting, but in the long run, it leads to a much easier life. With these tools, the body, rid of its burdens, can then use its own recuperative powers to rebuild. Disease is not natural. Health is our natural state and is always possible when interference is removed. True health is impossible to achieve when discord is present. This understanding is the foundation of any true health care system. Without this deeper comprehension of healing, any system of healing is bound to be a disease care system that will consume enormous amounts of wealth. That fits for me, but I'm still not sure. Isn't it positive thinking to want to love everyone and let go of my need to condemn? It seems like you're telling me not to think that. But if I don't, I'm stuck with my negative thinking, being angry and blaming others. Well, let me go back to the prison analogy and clarify my point about condemnation. I don't have to condemn the prison in order to inform you of its structure or to say, here are the pitfalls, this is where the guards are, and the lowest part of the fence is over there. You will need a ladder and a positive sense of yourself and what you will face in order to make it through. I can be in a constructive space and say, beware, the earmarks of the false teacher are blank and identify their characteristics. I can let you know that certain behavior does not support your highest and best. I can warn you, be aware if you find yourself or someone else doing these things and be in support of healing those behaviors, all without condemning. However, if your inner dialogue speaks to you frightfully about condemning, perhaps there's a need to heal your listening and rid yourself of the need to gloss over what does not work. There are two totally different issues here, Richard. One is condemning, the other is identifying. If you never make the distinction between the two, you will be vulnerable to either engaging in or being taken in by the thinking of the false teacher. When we support destructive behavior in the world, we're engaging in disintegrative energy. False teachers operate in religion, business, government, media, education, and in families. They can show up anywhere. As we develop the brain cells, we can see the behavior for what it is. If there is condemnation in us, we can then take responsibility for that condemnation, heal it, and bring healing and insight to false teachers. This also opens the space to stop the cooperation with and the support of false teachers. The alternative is to refuse to identify what is happening and not know why there's pain, rage, or suffering. It's amazing how many people are continuously angry. You know the type who slams the doors, kick the cat, beat the kids, and they cannot identify the source of their anger. Most often the rage comes from the helplessness of being in the grips of the false teacher and not knowing how to take back one's own power. The refusal to learn and live in harmony with truth leads to destructive behavior. The abused become manipulators and abuse those who are weaker, and this serves as a substitute for the power one is lacking over one's own life. It is a compensation for insecurity and weakness, masquerading as strength. I felt powerless most of my life, Michael. I feel I've been controlled through my fear, and I usually respond with anger. I think you've got me pegged.
Richard, it's an almost universal story. I could probably say the same thing to 90% of the population and be accurate. Most human beings have bought into reality structures, usually for security reasons, that allow them to engage in, support, or be controlled by manipulative behavior, and they unknowingly give up their aliveness to do it. With awareness of what is driving us and tools with which to heal, we can free ourselves from these patterned responses. It is important to be discriminating about what you serve with your intelligence, resources, and time. Right livelihood means you do nothing that supports disintegrative energy in the world and use your time, intelligence, money, and energy to support only awareness and aliveness. The need to condemn negative behavior or those practicing it can also be healed. A willingness to investigate is required. Knowledge is power. Ignorance does not lead to healing. It leads to staying stuck behind the prison fence suffering and pretending there is no way out, classic victimhood. With information, understanding, and dedication, it is possible to create a space of healing for anyone who engages in negative behavior. This includes ourselves and anyone who takes advantage of another. With this understanding, we can also support the healing of people who set themselves up to be manipulated. Every player in a situation must be healed for a total shift to occur. Healing also means that each person involved automatically moves closer to the awareness of their true purpose and finds it easier to be guided in its accomplishment. It is valuable to comprehend the healing dynamic so that we have the capacity to choose what to do and what not to do. Understanding manipulation in no way evaluates what another has done or should do, for that is his or her business, not ours. However, having proper understanding allows the space for us to be held accountable and to hold others accountable for what is done. This brings us to another belief promoted by the manipulator. You are bad and wrong if you ever catch me at my game and try to hold me accountable. There are people functioning out of their pain who manipulate and engage in actions you want to avoid. Their actions and cover stories can be very subtle. Some have spent their whole lives building a camouflage for their manipulations. It is important, especially since most of us were born into a manipulative world, to understand the subtleties of manipulation. Like the fish that cannot see water because it is so close, some forms of manipulative behavior are so ingrained they're invisible. I have observed that often a person being abused thinks it's normal and appropriate to be treated that way. When an abuser is confronted, the response is usually, that's not abuse, that's proper behavior. Recall the waitress, Richard? When you became conscious of your behavior, you categorized it as destroying. Prior to having the brain cells to see it for what it was, didn't you see it as proper? Remember, you were just protecting yourself. That protection was manipulation. The ability to identify conduct for what it is is important in breaking through the automatic cycles of behavior. When people who need their daily dose of abuse are confronted, their response is usually the familiar, I thought that's the way it was supposed to be. Their self-put-downs are cradled in guilt and the haunting thought that they deserve to be abused. This is shocking information. The part that is hard to believe is how oblivious I have been to it all in my entire life. I guess you could say I've been like the person in prison who thought that's the way that life is. We have all to some degree been trained in the fear of the world. 
each of us to some extent has been seduced by and engaged in manipulative behavior. Perhaps that is why most people would rather not admit, talk about, and acknowledge the fact that they intimidate others. They do not face themselves as you are now. Richard, on the edge of emotion surfacing, could not quite let go. Seeing the pained look in his face, I added, I acknowledge your courage and willingness to hear new information. That can be an especially difficult task when it involves looking at our errors or the errors of those we love. It can be even more difficult when we start to let go of the parts of us that need to be released and healed. I'm not sure what you mean when you say letting go of the parts of us that need to heal. It sounds like I might lose something in the process. It is frightening to most people. For some, at first, it appears to be the downside of doing this work. As you engage in this type of thinking and heal, you will lose a very dear friend. How so? When you engage in true forgiveness, fear, manipulation, blame, and guilt are going to evaporate from your life you'll no longer be able to play the role of victim, which has been a part of your life for so long. That friend is going to have to go. Well, I guess that's true. I'm just now realizing how much of my life and identity have been tied up with guilt and fear. It does seem like a big part of me is going to disappear. I won't know how to act anymore. Who will I be? Sounds like a part of you is already feeling sadness about the loss of those old personality roles you love to play. Giving up old identities and roles is important in this work. Sometimes those old selves don't go without a fight and a struggle. The feelings of loss can be so strong they might feel like death. In Aramaic it was said that in order to live you had to die. This may sound like a ridiculous statement, but when you see that the old self, the false, disempowering self has to go or die, for the true self to live, it makes perfect sense because it is a death of sorts. If you had asked me when I first started if I wanted to give up my feelings of guilt, anger, and sadness, I would have said no. These are normal feelings, part of what makes us human. Everyone has these feelings and they give us depth and character. Living without them would be a hollow and boring way to live. Richard, it might help to notice that guilt, anger, sadness, blame, and victimhood deliver no benefits. Though we've been convinced they're normal, they are not a natural nor a useful part of life, except as feedback. Aside from a perverse sense of righteousness, martyrdom, or negative attention, did they ever bring any actual love or benefit or reward? When those feelings are operational, are you a choice in your life? Who's running your mind at those moments? Well, those are interesting questions. I didn't realize how I distorted myself, nor how I twisted it to take pleasure in being a victim. I had not considered the fact that I gave up my power of choice to those feelings. It seems like a good way to get attention and not have to accept blame for anything. No matter what went wrong, I convinced myself it was always someone else's fault. As he continued, I was aware of Richard's efforts to keep breathing and sense a silent acknowledgement Another thing that seemed like a benefit at the time was that I pulled in sympathizers to listen to my stories and to agree with me. 
It was a way to feel powerful. By manipulating others into being on my side, I rallied support against a common enemy, convincing myself and almost everyone else that I was right. I had all those people in the palm of my hand agreeing with me as I attacked someone who was innocent. I was somebody. I see now, as you said earlier, Michael, that we never do to someone else what we have not already done to ourselves. I'm also realizing that we first have to create abuse within ourselves in order to abuse another or have another abuse us. I was trying to ostracize the person I blamed, but I was the one who ended up alone. In the end, my behavior led to nothing but gossip and lost friendships. I didn't even see my part in it. All I received from my efforts was negative attention and the same painful experiences over and over. When I was in the blame and guilt mode, it seemed like I had the power. Now it looks more like a false, useless attempt to protect myself, be right, and keep in control. My whole life, I've loved delivering the line, you'll be sorry when you see what you've done to me. I remember my dad saying it to my mom and my mom saying it to my sister. You know, it's, it's strange, but when I think of that, I, I feel a lot of sadness. I can see that I've followed the family relationship pattern. I've wanted to appear to be right and stay in control. By doing this, I was able to avoid dealing with my sadness. Richard, notice that the better you get at proving you're right, the more alone you are. The need to be right and to control, as with violence and gossip, usually come from insecurity. Guilt and blame are not really crutches that assist your life, but rather a ball and chain that holds you back. They are energies that are off the mark. Earlier when we were talking about your mom, we established that people felt driven away by you. When those people left, you felt like a victim. You are only a victim to the results of your own behaviors. The insights Richard gleaned from doing his work were the fruit of his willingness to look at his own painful realities and would change his life forever. He was experiencing firsthand that it was safe and healing to face and deal with himself and that there were very practical, real tools for going through that process. The change in him was visible. His posture became straighter. His voice deepened. He was in transition from victimhood to empowerment. His presence took on a whole new energy. My sense was that people in his life were going to appreciate him in a way he'd never experienced before. to me now that I set myself up. Strange as it sounds, I was comfortable in the role of a victim. I practiced it all my life. I didn't realize I caused the trauma that was my constant companion. It seemed to benefit me to show how wounded I was, how much of a victim I was, because people didn't tend to hold me accountable. It seemed to save me from further punishment and put me in control. I can see, however, that 
the first step in the process of becoming a victim was my choice to be victimized. As I look at it, I can see I purposely played the victim role to keep people from victimizing me. What manipulation, what a twisted way I've used people. As I think about it, I fed on the energy of the fear. It was that and anger. They seem to be my only two choices. I really have some work to do if I'm going to change the foundation of my relationships from fear and anger to love. I believe love is the most powerful force on earth. It seems one of the benefits of giving up anger, sadness, blame and guilt and letting go of my ball and chain is to be regaining my power. Is that it? Does this mean the choices I make are the key? You got it. That's right. And the new choices you've been making today are grounding you in your power. Then you're saying that the power I lost playing the victim becomes available to me to consciously recreate my life, to think about every part of me being aligned with and creating out of love. Well, that's pretty exciting. <laughs> that's exciting stuff. Yes, and it takes work. It's not an event that happens in a single moment, but a process that results from being responsible for what you set up in your life. Notice that the truth is safe and healing. Now that you're aware of the behavior patterns that don't serve you, you're in a position to change them. That is empowerment. It sounds like the only way you thought you could step into your power, other than through victimhood, was through hostility. Now that's exactly what I thought. Without my anger, I was powerless. Hostility is one of the most addictive, damaging drugs there is. Every person who engages in it needs their fix to keep their pain suppressed. Those who use this drug encourage others to do the same because they themselves have not faced what they have suppressed with their own anger. Often the rationalization that we have a right to our anger is used to justify holding on to this form of self-abuse. We must be willing to deal with what we've hidden from ourselves and stop using the drug if healing is to occur. Now what are you talking about? Do drugs suppress pain? If you look at someone who's extremely hostile, you will always find deep emotional pain. Hostility sets up body chemistry that suppresses pain. Using hostility is like any other drug. If one stops using their addictive substance, in this case, the internal chemistry produced by hostility, they will go into withdrawal when the pain the drug has suppressed surfaces. That is the point at which the craving gets so strong, many return to their supplier for another fix. One of the biggest challenges for the hostility act is that the supplier is internal, a tricky pusher from which to break contact. Hostility must be treated like any other drug. Its use must stop if one is to recover. The other challenge is that society is the enabler. <laughs> Wait a second. Enabler? What's that? In traditional drug and alcohol treatment, the enabler is the person who supports the user by covering for or assisting him or her in keeping up the habit. For example, a husband who drinks to oblivion every weekend doesn't have to deal with his poor performance at work if his wife calls his boss and makes excuses for him. If he were required to face his boss and admit he had a hangover, he would have to deal with the consequences of his behavior. He might get fired if his boss knew what was going on. Now, if she didn't cover for him, there would be no paycheck. The, the family would starve. Oh, that's a great rationalization, one many people use to avoid facing problems. 
They justify addictive behavior and tolerate it as necessary because of thoughts like that. I invite you to interview a woman who's been there. If you could establish the cost to her mental, emotional, physical health, the strain on her children and other aspects of her life, it's enormous. The impact of the anguish would be incalculable, hardly worth a paycheck. People deserve to live in gentle, loving environments where aliveness, delight, and joy are the norm. Anything less is an insult to the human spirit. With tools, it is possible for every person to create such a life. I see what enabling is, and I'm getting the idea that life can be different. But I don't understand what it means when you say society becomes the enabler. Well, any system that is set up to make it appear that abusive behavior is acceptable desirable or, or necessary enables people who engage in that behavior to continue. People often support abuse in the world without realizing there's any option, that there's anything they can do about it. They don't speak up, similar to your experience as a kid when you kept the family secrets. Like any woman who accepts the abuse of an alcoholic husband in order to maintain her lifestyle, society rationalizes that the behavior of a hostility addict is required to maintain itself. To question do we need hostile behavior to maintain our society is an incorrect question. Hostility is an integral part of our current culture. The real question to ask is, should we support that aspect of civilization which perpetuates violence? And then ask ourselves, is it sane to expose our precious children to this energy, even in the fantasy world of entertainment? Well, how does society enable hostile people? Richard, think of the functions and jobs that exist in our culture that support hostility as a normal and acceptable behavior. Often the bully is not just tolerated, but even welcomed. Many bureaucracies are fueled by hostility. In excess of 50% of the national budget is used to fund our war-making capabilities. How many of these activities do you suppose are patterned after the abuse many people learned in childhood? Well, probably the majority. But how did those patterns begin for most people? Many children are raised in homes where being beat up verbally, physically, and emotionally is normal. They presume maltreatment to be a part of life. They usually hate the abuse and their abusers, but people tend to become what they hate. They then contribute to the society that in turn accommodates them by creating ways that they can earn a living by being abusive, thus maintaining those patterns set in childhood. By this action, society fulfills the role of the enabler and the cycle is passed on to the next generation. The mistreated who are now in control tend to become abusers themselves. Abuse does not become sane because it is institutionalized, accepted, or looks normal.